Well, if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Jonah and chapter 1. Jonah and chapter 1. Uh, we are going to be in verses 17 through 3, 3a uh, this morning, and I will guide us through that uh, as we go. This is part four of our new study through the book of Jonah. We took a pause from the book of Luke until um, sometime in February where we'll pick that back up. But uh, we're in Jonah. If you want a scripture journal and you don't have one, uh, there are two kinds on the welcome desk. You feel free to go grab one uh, now or after service and take that home uh, with you and use it as you come. Uh, it also has other minor prophets in there uh, for you to use as well. So Jonah and chapter 1, uh, verse 17 through 3.3a. If you have it, say, I have it. All right, also be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. Let's read this together. The Holy Spirit says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and willows, billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven from the, away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayers came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. And may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Corey ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker and a Christian who was part of the resistance uh, during the Second World War. Uh, Corey and her family were bold Christians who used their home to hide Jews and others who were fleeing the Nazis. Well, Corey and her siblings were eventually found out and were sent to concentration camps. Uh, Corey survived the misery of the death camps and spent the rest of her life telling her and her family's story of resistance and civil disobedience in a book you can buy, the best-selling book called The Hiding Place. Uh, she would also speak at various places around the world, and I, wanna, I want you to listen, in her own words, um, of an encounter she had at one such event, okay? She says, it was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was a truth that they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture— Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest oceans, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. 
There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence connected, collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at our concentration camp where we were sent, and now he was in front of me. Hand thrust out, a fine message, Frau Line. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? I could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, says Jesus, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I could do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. For a moment, we grasped each other's hand, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This was an experience Boom was clearly not expecting. She likely never thought she would ever see that man again, and surely she did not expect him at an event like this, nor certainly did she think the man would ever become a Christian. You know, we would never say in polite company that we think someone is beyond the reach of grace, but we might silently think that if anyone <laughs> was it would be someone like a Nazi war criminal who actively worked in a concentration camp. For Boom, this was a surprising encounter for many reasons, and isn't that always how grace works? I don't know this, but I do wonder if God had told Boom before the event took place that this man would not only be there, 
but go up to her and speak to her and want to shake her hand, she might have decided not to go at all. Maybe she would call in sick. Maybe she would head to the event and find herself driving right past it and never looking back. She would likely wonder what God was trying to pull. If it were up to her, before knowing what she knew with hindsight, she would have preferred not to ever see that man again. But grace is surprising, isn't it? And grace is confronting. And grace works for people we may never expect. And grace is transformative. And grace works in ways and in situations we would never have guessed. Grace is surprising. That's part of what makes it grace. Jonah has experienced grace up to this point in the book in ways that were also surprising and unexpected, and in ways he would likely not prefer or chosen for himself. He is a recipient of grace, and God has chosen means Jonah would have never thought of. Jonah is a wayward prophet who has done something no prophet has ever done, run from the presence and the command of the Lord. So Jonah is someone who deserves whatever judgment from the Lord that the Lord sees fit. Yes? However, instead, we see God extend grace to him in the form of a raging sea. This is grace. A plunge to the depths of that sea. This is more grace. And in the belly of a large fish, all of which were means of grace to give our rebellious prophet another chance. And all of them were means of grace one would never have expected. So in our time together this morning, let's consider the unexpected nature of grace and what it ought to produce in the recipient. We'll do that by looking at three aspects, okay? Three aspects of grace that God provides, beginning with this. Point number one, grace for the new birth. Point number one, grace for the new birth. As we know, and as we have seen, after Jonah is thrown off the ship by the sailors, he is swallowed up by a what? Big fish. In the belly of the fish, he composes a psalm, which we looked at last week, and we see that in verses 2 through 9 of chapter 2. The fish then barfs Jonah up onto the unidentified shore. We don't know if it's close to Nineveh. We don't know if it's back in Palestine. And besides, he surely smells foul and having his pride and ego shaken. Jonah appears to be none the worse for wear. Jonah's experience in the storm and in the great fish, as we have mentioned throughout the series, were meant to be graces to him rather than purely punitive. God is a pursuer of rebellious sinners, and he intends to apprehend Jonah to reclaim the wayward rebel. Now, there's something that is hidden from us. When we read verses 1, 17 through 2.10 in English, now, at the risk of being overly technical... I want to point that out to you because I think it's an important lesson that the author intends to give us about Jonah's experience, okay? So lock into me for a second. In English, just as in Hebrew, we have masculine, feminine, and neuter words, yes? Masculine, feminine, and neuter words. What the author of Jonah does in verse 17 of chapter 1 is he uses the masculine form of the noun fish, okay? So we're told Jonah was swallowed up by a great fish, and he was in the fish's stomach, okay? And the fish's stomach is then it given in the neuter. You guys with me so far? Well, what the author does in 2.1 is he switches to the feminine form of the word fish, to where fish's stomach means something like fish's womb, okay? Why is this significant? 
because the author is signaling for us that the fish's stomach or womb is a place that God appointed to be from whence Jonah receives a new birth. It is where he moves from the chaos of the death in the sea to a a means of going from death to life. The sea, you understand, was seen by the ancients as a place of chaos and death. It was there where, where the scary and unseen sea beasts were dwelling. It was the entrance to Sheol, the abode of the dead with its river that judged souls before they crossed into the afterlife. It was a place that could not be tamed by anyone, and it was to be avoided. See, we moderns, we like the ocean, don't we? Not me, but y'all, right? We like large bodies of water. We go and we play in the surf, and we get on boat tours and cruises and jet skis or whatever else. You know, the ancients did not share this fondness for the water. So when someone was cast off of a ship like Jonah was, there was no hope of return. The sailors knew this. Jonah knew this. So as Jonah is sinking down into his watery grave, God does what? He appoints, that's what it tells us, right? a fish to take Jonah from the place of chaos and death to an opportunity at new life. This is why the author makes the change to calling the fish's belly a womb. He intends for us to see that the fish is a place of restoration and that this unlikely place of rebirth was an instrument of salvation through judgment. You must agree with me. The just desserts for Jonah's rebellion and disobedience were death being cast into the chaos of the sea and being banished to Sheol were what Jonah deserved. After all, he's the one who fled from the presence of the Lord of his own volition. And he knows all of this. He knows the penalty for rebellion against God was death, and he was willing to accept this, which is one of the reasons why he tells the sailors to toss him overboard. What he did not deserve was rescue. But because it is true... What he will say later in chapter 4, God is merciful and abounding in steadfast love, he's rescued. That is grace. Grace is a gift given to an undeserving person from an unobligated giver. This is what Jonah got from the Lord. He deserved death, but he got what? Life. New life, out of death, of the sea, via the womb of a great fish. We, no less than Jonah, deserve death for our sin against our Creator. Like Jonah, we have sinned and rebelled and disobeyed and fled from our God. I am Jonah. You are Jonah. Like Jonah, we have thumbed our nose at God and cast off His holy statutes. Like Jonah, we deserve to be tossed in the chaos of the sea of God's wrath. And here's the other key we need to understand that many don't realize. We don't need, if that's the case, we don't need mere improvement. We need new life. We don't need religious play acting. We need the new birth. But thankfully, like he did with Jonah, God offers grace as a gift as an unobligated giver to unworthy recipients like us. As Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the sea, what he did not need was a towel or a motivational speech, or some floaties, or a lifesaver, or swimming lessons. He needed utter rescue from the brink of death and chaos of the drink to bring him up to the shore. 
We don't need to try harder or to be more moral or to be more religious or more impressive or told how to swim. We need to be brought to life because the Bible says that apart from a move of God, we are already dead. Not sort of dead. Not mostly dead all day like in The Princess Bride. Not close to dead. That was for you, Casey. Not even mostly dead. The Bible says we are full out dead. We're walking around like zombies, giving off the impression of life, but inside just decaying things, grunting and walking funny. So what do we need? We need new birth. We need new life. And if we're dead, then that must mean we can't provide life for ourselves. Any more than Jonah could just kick his feet real hard and reach the surface. Human effort cannot bring about the new birth any more than a baby can bring about their own conception and birth. This is why Jesus tells the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3 that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He tells that to Nicodemus two more times in that one conversation. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if there was anyone who was nice and respectable religious person who tried real hard to obey God and was morally impressive and well thought of by the community, it was Nicodemus. But what does Jesus tell him? Unless you receive the new birth from the Spirit of God, you won't see the kingdom. Uh, you know, you've heard of George Whitfield, I'm sure, right? He, he would often, a lady asked George Whitfield one time as he was traveling and preaching, why he so often insisted on preaching these words, you must be born again. He said it so often and so much, she wanted to know, why do you always say you must be born again? And Whitfield looked at her and he said, because madam, you must. There's no other way into the kingdom of God. The only way in is by the one thing we need and can never do for ourselves, new birth. You must, thou must save, and thou alone. In his little book called Conversion, Michael Lawrence says that we too are susceptible, like Nicodemus, to thinking that we could just have a nice, respectable religion, and this will be enough in the end. He calls the relig- this the religion of nice, and he says this is based on three ideas, an optimistic view of human beings, a domesticated view of God, and a view of religion as a means of moral self-reform. He says the equation goes like this. God wants me to be good. I'm able to be good, and religion will help me to do that. This, then he says this, no churches ever explicitly teach the religion of nice. In fact, they typically teach the exact opposite. But those same churches are filled with people who believe that God will accept them based on how good they've been. I've heard it. I've heard it on too many living room couches and nursing home beds. Not perfect. No one ever says that, but good enough. He says, my point is this, the appeal of nice is not only that it panders to our prideful desire to justify ourselves, it also dispenses with the need to justify ourselves to God altogether. It numbs my sense of guilt, it soothes my anxious insecurity, and promotes the illusion that I am in control of my own fate on Judgment Day. 
And that is the danger that presently lurks, especially, don't you realize this, in the American South. Just enough religion to feel like God will accept me in the end. The problem, as we said, however, is we have failed to reckon with the fact that we are dead. Putting nice clothes and makeup on a corpse does not make it any less dead. We need new birth. And God knows this, and he provides this through Jesus. Through Jesus, we're being offered to be moved from death to life. We are, we are being offered a new birth that makes us new creation, capable of doing things we never could do before, but can do now thanks to the indwelling spirit. We are thus transformed from the inside out and cleansed by Jesus. We are made new and given new affections as the old nature is replaced more and more with the new. And it's all grace. Don't you see? And it's all from God as an unobligated giver who makes us into new creations when, he get, when we give our allegiance to Jesus. A.H. Frank said over 300 years ago that no doctrine in Christianity is more necessary than the doctrine of rebirth. This is the very ground upon which Christianity stands. And in Jonah's case, what were the circumstances and the vehicles of grace to bring him to a new birth? a new beginning and a second chance. The most unlikely circumstances one could think of, a storm, a visit to the depths of the sea and the belly of the fish. And this brings us to our second point. Point number two, let's call this grace in all circumstances, okay? Grace in all circumstances. So if we fast forward from the womb of the fish to the shore in which Jonah is barfed up on in chapter 3. We see something of a reset button being hit, don't we? Here, when we read the first three verses of chapter 3, we should have a feeling of deja vu from the beginning of the book. In fact, 3-1 through, th- through 3-B are almost verbatim repetitions of the divine call issued in 1, 1, and 2. And there's a few minor adjustments we see. Once again, the Lord, word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it. Now, Jonah is being given a second chance, isn't he? And I mean, you can see that by the key language in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what? The second time. Right? He's given another chance to obey. Jonah's problem, like all sinners, is clearly that he has his own ideas of what it looks like to live in light of revealed divine will. God says, do this, and Jonah says, I actually have my own way of doing things better, so I'll just run away. That's what happens in chapter 1. And this is the pattern, do you realize, that all sin follows. God is God. He has a design for how to live in the world and what he expects from his creation. Man rebels and decides he has a better way and would make a better God. It's been that way since Eden, hasn't it? That's the pattern of all sin. Now, how many of you had to read Moby Dick when you were in school? Nobody. What has happened to our, a couple of you, okay? What has happened to our education system, am I right? One of the most important plot points, I don't mean that, one of the most important plot points in Herman Melville's novel, Moby Dick, is a sermon, do you guys who've read it, you might remember, the sermon from Father Maple before Captain Ahab and crew set sail. Now, Father Maple's sermon happens to be on the book of Jonah, (laughs) 
And the theme of the sermon is in this statement that Father Maple makes. He says, if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. See, that's an amen. And it is in this disobeying ourselves, he says, wherein the hardness of obeying God exists. This is a lesson Jonah needed to learn anew. And if it took the means of a near-death experience followed by the rescue via a large fish who subsequently barfs him up three days later, so be it. What we must remember is something we've been saying all along, which is that God is interested in Jonah the person. Although his task is to go to Nineveh so that they could have a chance to repent, God is using this experience to teach Jonah and to teach Israel a lesson about his sovereignty and about his grace to people outside their little group and the motivation for obedience, which is unmerited grace from an unobligated God. God is showing that he is interested in Jonah and Jonah's transformation. Whether Jonah allows grace to transform him is up to him. But God gives him a chance, and he uses unlikely means to accomplish this. If all God cared about was getting the word to Nineveh so that they could perhaps repent, he could have discarded Jonah, right? He could have found a prophet who would actually do what he was told the first time. Just let, just let him sink to the bottom of the sea and move on. Call another prophet. There's plenty of him. But he knew Jonah would run, didn't he? Yet he called Jonah anyway. He knew he would sink like a stone to the ocean floor, yet he rescued him anyway. Why? Why call Jonah in the first place? It was because Jonah was God's project. You see, God comes after Jonah not because he needs Jonah, but because Jonah needs God. And Jonah needs to realize this regardless of how unpleasant the circumstances are to get him to that point. My friend, we must take the same lesson to heart. Okay? Let's do the math. If God is sovereign, which he is, and he rules with such meticulous providence that nothing happens without either his permission or direction, which he does, and he loves and pursues self-righteous rebels, which he does, then this must mean that everything that happens to us is done for his purposes to his ends, which are always for our good. Jonah shows us that God cares even for disobedient rebels and that he intends to pursue them to the ends of the earth while oftentimes using unexpected means to get their attention and grow them in grace. The story of Jonah fascinates people for obvious reasons, right? A man in the belly of a fish for three days and surviving is fantastical. It dazzles the imagination. Who would have come up with such things? It seems like such an unlikely means of God's redeeming grace. And that's the point. Nothing happens in our lives that God is not sovereign over. Do you realize this? Nothing happens in your life by accident or coincidence. If you are not a Christian, God is using the things in your life to get you to him. If you are a backsliding Christian, God is using the things in your life to get you back to him. 
If you are a Christian, God is using the things in your life to get you to grow in Christ-likeness and dependence on Him. Even the things that are unpleasant. Is there anything more unpleasant that you could think of than being in the belly of a fish for three days? I mean, he didn't even have his cell phone, right? As even things that are unpleasant or that we wouldn't have chosen ourselves or that we wish wouldn't have happened, God is using those things as unlikely as many of them may seem to refine and grow us and change us. This means they're all of grace. Let's use a biblical illustration for this. Remember Joseph? Remember our guy Joseph? Jacob's favorite kid, right? All of his brothers knew he was his favorite. And on one occasion, Jacob give, gave Joseph a sweet coat, right? And just a bunch of colors, and, and it's just the dopest coat you've ever saw, right? And in typical younger sibling fashion, what does Jonah, Joseph do? Puts it on and strut around like a peacock, right, in front of his brothers, and on top of that, he told his brothers, hey, I, I had a dream, and all y'all were in it, and I was ruling over you, right? So they hated his guts, and so they sold him into slavery. Well, in a surprising turn of events, Joseph works his way up the ranks. You guys know the story, right? In the Egyptian court, until everything gets messed up, and he's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. So he went to prison. Well, in prison, he shares his, cell, his cellmate was Pharaoh's cupbearer. And his Pharaoh's cupbearer gets let out, and he says, don't forget me, okay? And he's like, I won't, and he does. He forgets him. He remembers two years later when the Pharaoh had a dream no one can interpret. So Joseph is called. He interprets the dream as a coming famine. He becomes a leader in Egypt. He saves the land from famine, and his brothers come up kneeling before him, and they are eventually forgiven and united, right? Joseph famously tells his brothers a verse that you well know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You remember that, all that? Now, don't you think Joseph at the beginning would have preferred not to be kidnapped? Not to be sold into slavery? Don't you think Joseph would have preferred not to have ended up in jail for something he did not do? Don't you think Joseph would have preferred the cupbearer would have a better memory and remember him sooner than two years? And did Joseph think God had abandoned him in all his troubles? But here's another question. Would Joseph had changed a single thing about any of that if he knew where he would end up? If he knew what God knew? So for Joseph, God used something even meant for evil with evil intent for the good of Joseph and millions of others. Not only that, but Joseph won't even see in his lifetime that God is orchestrating his descendants being in Egypt to show forth God's glory in the Exodus. All these threads that come out of something that was meant for purely Evil purposes God used for his glory and for the good of Joseph. He weaves all these seemingly random threads into a beautiful tapestry. And he does that in your life too. My friend, nothing that has happened in your life is happening in your life or will happen in your life is by accident. All of it is grace. And all of it is meant to grow you in the Lord. There is nothing in your life that is neutral. All of it is molding you into something. Which means that every turn, God places things in our lives that we might not prefer so that they could shape us into the person he intends for us to be. Or we can waste those opportunities and we can miss them. 
and we can miss out on what God is trying to do for, for and through us and for and through our circumstances, whether they be perceived by us as good or not. Our lives then are constant series of choices, and the choices we make will cause us to be better or worse, to run to Jesus or away from Jesus, to board ships to Tarshish or to flee to the presence of the Lord. Many of you, I know none of you guys watch movies, but many of you might remember uh, the movie Superman 3. Is that something? No? What a bummer. Well, in Superman 3, this dates me, man. Come on. Uh, <laughs> Christopher Reeve was Superman. This is this famous scene, okay, where Superman takes a piece of coal and he crushes it. And it, he opens his hand, it's a diamond. Okay? And this led to countless people to believe that diamonds come from coal, okay? <laughs> which they don't. But you know, something interesting about coal and diamonds is that they both come from carbon. And you make both of them from uh, that carbon being exposed to incredible amounts of heat and incredible amounts of pressure. The difference? To make coal, you have to introduce impurities in the process. To make diamonds, you have to leave all the impurities out. So both diamonds and coal are made from the same basic elements. Both of them are exposed to immense pressure, but only one is ugly and one is beautiful depending on the amounts of impurities introduced. See, things like hardship, pressure, sufferings and trials, things that expose us to immense discomfort and pressure, things we couldn't imagine turning into anything good, they're all grace. You know, I know it's hard to see in the midst of most of them, but God uses unlikely things to grow us in Him. And we must make a choice at every turn because we will never remain the same. We will grow more like Christ or we'll be more into our stubborn, self-propelled running. We will get better or we'll get worse. We'll become more grateful and thankful or we'll become self-centered and bitter. Run to Christ or away from Him. These are our choices. If God can use a ship a storm, a group of pagan sailors, and the belly of a fish as a means of grace to reclaim a wayward prophet, he can use whatever you're facing to get you to him for the first time or back to him or more of him. Don't you see? But finally, we must move on, point number three. Point number three, God provides grace to obey. God provides grace to obey. As mentioned, the reader of Jonah, who has seen him called to arise and go to Nineveh, only for him to pull a bait and switch and arise and go to not Nineveh, would be pleasantly surprised to see in 3.3 that this time he arises and goes where he's supposed to go. He finally obeys. He finally ceases his resisting of the divine call. Just as when one would read chapter 1 for this first time and hear God call a prophet, right? We talked about this, and expect him to obey at once. We have now been familiarized with our stubborn prophet and know what happened last time. And thus, we might hear, arise, go, and think, oh no, he's going to flee again, isn't he? But instead, we're surprised to learn that Jonah does, in fact, rise and go to Nineveh. Last time, he arose and went to Joppa to go to Tarshish. Now he arises and goes to Nineveh like he was supposed to do from jump. Nothing here tells us, if you read it again in 3, 1 through 3, nothing in here tells us of jo if Jonah's feelings about the commission have changed. 
does it? But we aren't told if he likes the command to go any more now than he did at the first. We aren't told here if he has internalized grace to the point that he recognizes that he needs it just as much as the Ninevites do, and he doesn't deserve it any more than the Ninevites do either. As we said, God is more interested in Jonah than he is in what Jonah can do, just as he is more interested in you than in what you can accomplish. Now, obedience needs to be put in its proper place, doesn't it? Obedience is for the good of the one pursuing it, because grace precedes it. You see, here's the key phrase. We obey from acceptance and not for acceptance. And we need to get that right if we're going to obey properly and with the right motives. So this reset button of chapter 3 is showing us that the logical response to grace received is obedience. It shows us that grace doesn't soften or lessen or nullify God's demands. In fact, grace makes obedience more logical, more urgent, more necessary, and never less. Grace doesn't throw out God's commands as some suppose. We must note that this book is both soaked in grace and mercy and the patience of God, and we never once see God budge on what he's calling Jonah to do. God doesn't negotiate terms in order to make it more palatable for Jonah. In fact, look, he heightens the command this time, doesn't he? There's a change between the call in chapter 1 and here in chapter 3. Do you see it? Now God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh, same, but he must say the precise message that God tells him to say. God didn't tell him that the first time, but now he does. He says, say what I tell you. Don't try to editorialize. Don't add or take away. Just say what I tell you to say. As Douglas Stewart notes, Jonah has already learned that he cannot escape Yahweh's call to Nineveh. Now he's reminded that he cannot hope to influence or adjust the message Yahweh will give him. He must resign himself to the fact that Yahweh is concerned for Nineveh. So God in his mercy and grace is giving Jonah another shot. It's grace through and through, isn't it? God both restores the communion. Don't miss that either. He restores the communion that Jonah forsook, and he gives Jonah a second chance to be someone who was a recipient of grace and could then turn around and give it to those he thought didn't deserve it. Kevin Youngblood said, Jonah was counting on Yahweh to judge him swiftly so that he wouldn't have to go to Nineveh. What he is being shown is that Yahweh's judgment nor his mercy can be manipulated. Yahweh also wishes to show Jonah mercy so that he will give it. So grace surprised Jonah. He didn't deserve a second chance, but God gave him one. This is why it's grace, yes? He deserves death, as we've talked about, in the sea and separation from God and Sheol, but he's been rescued from the jaws of Sheol, restored to fellowship with the God that he fled from, and given a chance to fulfill his call. It was as if nothing has changed. This is all grace. Jonah is brought through a severe, unlikely test of grace and responds as he ought to, as he should have done in chapter 1, by arising and going to Nineveh. Notice, according to the word of the Lord. He disobeyed, God pursued him, he used unlikely means of grace, and now Jonah is obeying from the posture of someone who has received a second chance. Have you noticed, in reading this book, that everything in this book has been obedient and compliant except the most religious fella. Have you noticed that? 
even the inanimate objects and sea creature have been obedient to the Lord. The wind does what it's told. The waves do what they're told. The ship does what it's told. The fish does what it's told. Only the most religious and pious man is disobedient. Isn't that interesting? When you think about it, it's true that in all of creation, only man is disobedient to the Lord. Isn't that true? Everything else does what God says. Only man has a problem with obedience. David Platt put it like this. We spurn our Creator's authority over us. God beckons storm clouds and they come. He tells the wind to blow and the rain to fall and they obey immediately. He speaks to mountains. You go there. And he says to the seas, you stop there. And they do it. Everything in all of creation responds in obedience to the Creator until you get to you and me. We have the audacity to look God in the face and say, no. Jonah says no. But once he's a recipient of grace, what does he do? He obeys. He finally does what he's told in chapter 3, and he goes to Nineveh. Jonah is now as compliant as the other servants in the book, the wind and the sea and the fish. My friend, you must realize that God is more interested in you than he is in your obedience. But because, don't, don't miss this, but because he is interested in you and your good, he calls you to obey. If you want to live for the things that bring only temporary comfort and happiness, there's plenty to choose from. There's plenty of ships sailing to Tarshish. That's what disobedience really is. Hope in things of earth to bring us the joy and fulfillment we seek, and yet they always leave us empty as we knew they would. They never pay what they promise, just like we knew they couldn't all along. Only God can take you beyond that. If you want to go beyond what you could ever become on your own, only God can do that. And that's what obedience does, don't you see? Obedience is grace in that it grows the one obeying because they're living a life and pursuing life the way God designed it to be. And there is joy. And it is joy to pursue obedience. Why? Because grace is transformative. And what I mean by that is once you've experienced grace and you see the incredible kindness of God to pursue you and purchase you when you deserved only to sink to the bottom of the sea because of your insatiable pursuit of ships to Tarshish, you'll see that obedience is not only for your good, but can be pursued with freedom knowing that they don't save you, but they get you more of your Lord. As Charles Spurgeon said, he has done such great things for us, and he has shown us so much goodwill that to pay him reverence seems not so much the call of duty as the natural impulse of love. Grace transforms us into a people who love obedience and hate disobedience. Why? Because we love what gives our Father joy, and we hate that which would hinder our closeness with him. Michael Reeves said, the more we sense Christ's unfathomable love for us, how kind and merciful he is and has been, how much he has suffered for our forgiveness, how he is truly better than all the other things we run after, the more we will begin to enjoy holiness and hate sin because we enjoy him and hate what stands against him in all his goodness, truth, and beauty. The lavish grace of Christ compels and empowers us to obey. And one of the signs that we have been truly transformed and have internalized grace, and that it has truly taken root in our hearts, is a posture towards obedience. Do we see it as duty or delight? 
Do we work hard to circumvent this obedience, or do we pursue it more and more? Do we see it as a way to win God's affection, or do we see it as a fitting response to the affections God has already bestowed upon us? Are we, like Jonah in chapter 1 and 2, people who put on a good religious show, but are more disobedient than inanimate objects? Or have we internalized grace to the point that we're being transformed by it into something we Never could be apart from a move and empowering of God towards running rebels like us. As Klein Sondergrass said, God's mercy must, be treated, must not be treated cavalierly. Mercy is not effectively received unless it is, it is shown for God's mercy transform. One of my favorite illustrations of this is from Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables. Have you guys read that one? Have you seen the movie? <laughs> John Valjean is released, the main character, he's released from a long prison term for stealing a loaf of bread, okay? When he's released, as you can imagine, he's denied shelter from all the respectable places because he's a former convict. And he finally finds shelter in a most unexpected place, which is in the church from the kind and hospitable bishop. Well, one night, Valjean cannot help but fall back into his old thieving ways, and he makes off with the church's silver, When the police catch him and bring him back to the church, Valjean claims the bishop gave him the silver as a gift, which, of course, is a lie. When the police brought him before the bishop, the bishop said, Oh, so there you are. I'm delighted to see you. Have you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? Now, having said all this, the police let Valjean go, of course. And the entire time, we're told that Valjean looked at the bishop and he's bewildered. With the, has this bewildered expression, and he's trembling all over. While John could not understand the grace that the bishop had shown him, it confused him. Shouldn't he instead punish him? The bishop then says this to Valjean. He says, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Now, would you know what happened? The merciful act made such an impression on the troubled convict that it left him indelibly changed forever. Having been the recipient of unspeakable, undeserved, and surprising mercy in an act that he meant for evil, Valjean's life is never the same. And how could it be? And the rest of the story follows Valjean living a different life and becoming a person who gives grace and mercy to others and even becomes someone who selflessly, selflessly saves others. Instead of being a thief, he becomes a hero who gives grace to others because it was shown to him and it informs his whole life. You see, Valjean's response to unmerited grace is what makes sense. Valjean deserved the exact opposite of what he received, but when one comes into contact with unmerited grace, they can't help but be transformed and live in light of the grace. Shouldn't that be so for us too? You want to talk about grace in unexpected ways and unexpected places? You want, you want an example of judgment and mercy meeting in the same place? You want an example of something people meant for evil and God using it for a good he had planned in eternity's past? You want to see the paradox of grace given through most unlikely means? You want to see something that one would look at and say, what good can come from this? And it turning out to be the greatest good done to humanity? Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. 
We have all that and more. Who would have thought that God would use a place of execution and the cruelest execution device known to man and the Son of God incarnate hanging upon a tree as the means by which he saves the world and brings rebels to himself? Who would have thought that the innocent God-man taking the full wrath of God that we stored up on his innocent shoulders would be the means by which abundant grace would be lavished on wretches like us to turn us from enemies into sons and daughters of God? But that's the paradox of grace, isn't it? Said Warren Peel, if God is able to take the murder of his own son and use it for good, There's no situation in your life or mine too bleak for him to turn to good. In any and every situation, we can always say by faith, if not by sight, God is using even this for good. It doesn't make the thing itself any less evil or painful, but it gives us a perspective that we desperately need to hold on to so that we are not overwhelmed by the apparent chaos all around us. Let us then remember this gospel and see grace in every situation as we rest in a gracious God who uses even the most confusing of circumstances to bring us to him or back to him. And let us be transformed by his mercy, received and never be the same again. Consider how God is working through your life right now and run to him.